Hello, welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that hosts powerful, imperfectly perfect conversations and shines the light on amazing individuals and their work in order to empower young people, teachers, educators, leaders and parents to live a happy and fulfilled life and most importantly, to flourish. We really hope you enjoy all our conversations. Welcome to another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today, I'm super excited to be speaking to Dr. Pekern. So I'll explain why in a minute when we have the conversation, but I've, I've done, I've researched and looked at a lot of the articles that Peggy has, has written. So articles and chapters, uh, two books, just phenomenal amount of work of research so I'm really really excited so just a bit of information uh, for our listeners Peggy's associate professor at the Centre for Wellbeing Science at Melbourne Graduate School of Education University of Wellbourne so a very warm welcome to the podcast Peggy thank you it's a pleasure to be here Thank you. And also thank you for waking up so early for us to be on the podcast. I appreciate that. <laughs> Amazing. So shall we start with, with the first question that I have? And I guess uh, I, as a linguist, I think that would be really good to start with that is um, something that is very close to my heart. So the reason I, I did my research around flourishing languishing and around mental health men, you know, is because in the UK, when we use words like mental health, effectively we mean mental ill health, but we don't say that, okay? So shall we start with linguistics and words and in particular the definition of well-being? So for you, what is well-being and why is it important to define it? Yeah, so, and I, I think that distinction of when we say mental health, what do we really mean? Because people are often thinking about the negative side of things, thinking about mental illness and the lack of mental illness. Um, well-being is more than the lack of mental illness. Um, and different people ha have defined it in different ways. There's different models or ways of thinking about it. I really like Felicia Huppert's uh, definition of feeling good and functioning well across different domains of life. And so it's there's this feeling aspect of how we actually are feeling as we go about our day. There's also how we're functioning within different domains. And that can include things like physical health, uh, our social relationships, our sense of meaning, um, some, for some spirituality. So there can be different domains that matter to people, but it's within that we're feeling and functioning well. Okay, wonderful. And so if we take that definition of uh, therefore living and functioning well, you know, despite struggles, um, how do educators, teachers and young people fare in Australia? Because in England, obviously, we have a, a big issue where, where our teachers are very unhappy and many are leaving the profession. Um, we obviously, it's no secret, you know, it's been in the Guardian that our young people are, have been uh, labelled as being the most unhappy teenagers in Europe. Um, so clearly in the UK, unfortunately, uh, our young people and our teachers are not very happy. So I'm, I'm curious, is it the same in Australia or, or are you doing a, a better job of, as, have, as having sort of um, you know, educators and, and teachers who are happier? I, I would say that there's a lot of variation across different schools and across different school systems. Um, we are seeing, I mean, with the young people, you are seeing a lot of mental illness and that's occurring at younger and younger ages. Um, and this was before the pandemic. And so the pandemic has really accentuated a lot of the patterns that were already there. Um, especially when we when we look at um, our year 11, year 12 students, the anxiety levels, um, um, really, you're looking at over two thirds of the students reporting high levels of anxiety and whatnot. And so I, I think that's actually opened up the whole interest in focusing more on well being. 
and saying, okay, this isn't okay. We need to be much more proactive about supporting the students. And I think one of the big things in terms of focusing on positive education and uh, more positive approaches is really trying to say well-being is just as important as learning. Um, I think we've, there, there's, with, with standardized testing and things like that, there's been a huge focus on academic test scores. And here in Australia, we have things like the ATAR and um, the NAPLAN, which is sort of like tests that students have to do. And then we always compare and scores are going down or whatever. And so we need more focus on academics, but that's stressing out the students. And, um, and so really we say, you know, actually it's academic learning as well as well-being and functioning and that these are not competing priorities. These actually need to be both that we actually focus on because if the well-being is not okay, the academics are not going to be okay. Um, if we can get the well-being right, the academics will follow. And so there's been a growing focus on students. Um, and I think we're starting to see more of a focus on staff. That's been lagging. It's sort of been like, okay, we need to focus on students because they're our end user, you know, they're, they're our, our, our key priority. But if teachers are not feeling well and they're, you know, they're burning out, they're high stress and whatnot, and then you ask them to deliver a well-being curriculum, number one, they're not really going to be believing it. And number two, it's not going to be authentic and the students will see right through it. Um, and so with some of our work and some of my other colleagues, we've been really pushing that you actually really need to start with the well-being of the teachers and the staff, um, because it's all of the adults in the school environment, also the leaders, you have high, yeah, those in leadership positions, um, uh, we see really high levels of mental illness and burnout and whatnot. And so really, we need to be focusing on sort of everyone in the school, really putting well-being at the heart of that. And we have seen in some of our reports that schools that have actually put well-being at the heart, the students and staff are doing better um, as they, especially after we've gone through all the lockdowns and then coming back, when there's been the huge focus on academics, the students have fallen apart. Whereas when there's the focus on well-being, the students have actually done much better. This is literally music to my ear because I always say it's about flourishing first then lifelong learning forget it if you're not flourishing then you're not going to be able to learn and I also say for me flourishing education is about flourishing students and flourishing adults in their lives so obviously the parents need to be flourishing and and the teachers and the leaders etc because I'll never forget I can't I can't quite I can't remember who did that that work and and the survey but I'm sure you, you might be able to enlighten us you know the, the survey where they saw all the work where they took a, a, a lab rat stressed it out and then put it back with its partner lab rat that who, which had never experienced stress and it changed its brain structure to adjust and I was completely when I read that I was like oh my goodness um so I wonder if there's anything you want to add to that, like to to heighten that the importance of the the adults in the in the part of the or in the life of these young people. Yeah, I mean, so I uh, and I like to think about you know what we've done in well-being in terms of sort of some different waves that have occurred, and we started with sort of like the students got to focus on student well-being. And then sort of the second wave was all like, oh, we actually need to focus on the teachers and the staff. And what we're moving towards is thinking more of sort of the whole system. So kind of thinking about the school as a system and there's different people within that. Um, there's the students themselves, there's the teachers, there's the non-teaching staff, there's the school leadership, there's the parents, there's the local community. And each of these are impacting upon each other. And if we really want to think that we're doing education right, then we really want to focus on optimal functioning for every person within that system. And that if we can actually get that right, then you know, optimal functioning, that's, that's going to be you know, engagement in learning, that's going to be hopeful about life, that's going to be you know, actually feeling a sense of belonging in the school community. And 
you know, the test scores that we worry about so much and whatnot, those will follow if, if those pieces are, are in place, you know, and the schools should really be the heart of our communities that are, you know, it's, it's igniting a desire for lifelong learning for our young people. It's drawing in the community as a place to really, you know, help, help, you know, we be so encouraged by students who are doing well because the, the, the rest of us as we, we, we try to navigate life and whatnot, you know, the excitement and curiosity of young people can, can be something that just enlivens our lives so much. But instead, you know, too often all of these things are separated. And so we really need to be moving towards thinking about the entire system of the school and how we can help every individual really flourish because each one is going to impact upon the others, either for better or for worse. And so you've mentioned the, the testing and the standardized testing. And, and I wonder, obviously, how do we, how do you in your work measure that optimized well-being? Uh, would, would you talk to us about that? And, and do you measure it from an individual's perspective? Or do you have a way of also measuring how the whole community is also thriving uh, or, or flourishing? Yeah. Um, I'm not happy with how we're measuring the, the sort of the thriving of the community at this point. A lot of the measures are really around we, you know, we measure the student well-being, we measure the staff, we can measure others in the school and see how they're doing both on different positive dimensions, also different negative dimensions. So we do want to know, are they dealing with things like depression, anxiety? bullying, low self-esteem. We want to know both sides because we want to be lowering the negative stuff and boosting the more positive stuff. Um, and then what happens is then we kind of look at the whole collective responses and we say, well, yes, they're doing well or no, they're not doing well. And, and maybe these individuals are doing better and these ones aren't. So maybe the, that's where we need to give a bit more attention. But what that that's missing is sort of the, the sort of, I, I, in between spaces, you know, what happens within the environment itself. Um, with my uh, PhD student, Laura Allison, we've been working on um, identifying the classroom system. And so how you can actually really capture the a flourishing classroom system, which includes the students, it includes the teacher, it includes the class as a whole, which goes beyond just the, the individuals, but it's actually how the class is functioning and also the learning environment as a whole. And there's aspects of that, that, you know, it, I can walk into a classroom and have a sense, wow, this is a really flourishing class. There are other classes I can walk into where it's sort of like, and there's the tension that you can just feel. And so those individual measures start to get at that because they start to say, well, how is the individual perceiving their life or their learning? But we also need to be capturing some of the more, what's happening in the environment itself that, you know, this is actually a healthy environment or it's actually undermining well-being of the individuals. So it's, it's a question that uh, I haven't been entirely happy with the measures that we have but I think we're moving towards that. Yes and I, I wonder whether there might be space for I don't know what your thoughts are as, as such a sort of you know expert researcher as a like almost a framework for uh, community well-being um, yes. and I don't know do, do you have any any inkling as to where well, that well, it's, it's funny that you say that so with my, my student so we just created this classroom framework and rubric for observing uh, classroom flourishing. And we were having a conversation and she's all like, I would love to repeat this and do this with parents and then get to the community. And so I think in many ways that creates a framework or kind of the, the steps for us to build on um, to actually be getting at that sense of, I mean, we, we for the community, we do it in different ways. We, we measure different objective aspects of the community. You know, how many sports teams are there? How many, you know, different, opportunities are there? Is there, is it walkable? You know, we can measure the different things objectively and then we can actually measure people in the community. But um, I, I think we still have more work to do to really get at that whole sense of how is the community really doing? And then where, how can we then use that information to then address places in the community that perhaps need more support 
and perhaps use the parts that are doing well to actually help the parts that perhaps are struggling more. Yes, I really like that. And that, that fits in really well with what I've been, we've, we've been doing with my colleague before I took my career break, my one year off. Is we were, I was getting really frustrated by, the, by what I was seeing in the UK. So the, this idea that we, we focus on the well-being of students, rightly so, because they obviously needed our support, uh, but it really felt like it was like tweaking an engine. So like it's a, it's an engine. I'm going to tweak this part to make it rev better. And the impact is that it would is having impact on on us academics, for example, and other stuff. You know, adding workload to our already quite large workload, etc. Um, and what I felt even more frustrated by is the fact that, so there wasn't this systemic approach that, you know, it's an engine and we'll just tweak it. Um, and recognizing that as an engine, I mean, I'm affecting others and others are affecting me, I guess. And then the second part to that is the, the, the feeling that, um, I guess we we were sent on those courses. So, you know, if you're not feeling well, you can go and do mindfulness, you can go and do Reiki, you can do and do you know, all of those things. So it's like bolted on, added on, uh, usually put in the middle of your week when you're already stressed out, right? And it's like, hey, there's this mindfulness course when you're like tearing your, eye, your hair out because you're trying to get your work finished. Um, and so we started talking about embedding well-being in the curriculum and doing work. So before I sort of talk about what we did and, and, and get your take on that, I'd love your input on this part. Do you, do you see the same thing? Do you agree with me? Do you, are you slightly frustrated by that as well or not? Oh, very much, yeah. So, you know, you, you spoke to two things there, which very much are the case. So first of all, it's sort of the... Uh, a very symptom-based approach to addressing issues. So we have a red flag here. So then we kind of stop up the, the, the leak right there. But meanwhile, there are flow-on effects to everything else. And I, we see this all the time is that, you know, uh, uh, teachers are already way over in terms of the workload. And, and then it's all like, oh, now you need to add on the well-being stuff as along with behavioral management stuff and whatnot when actually there are a lot deeper issues that are, are, are addressing things. And if we actually get to sort of what's going on underneath the surface, you know, actually those little symptoms are going to actually disappear. So we actually need to have a bigger perspective about what's going on. The other aspect you spoke to is sort of that there's something wrong with the individual. You're not functioning well, therefore, why don't you just, you know, uh, do do some mindfulness. I, lo I, I love the mindfulness is now like the fix for everything. If you're really stressed out about everything and because you don't have time or anything, you should now take some extra time to go do some mindfulness and that's going to make everything disappear. Now, mindfulness can be great, but it has a place and a role that's within everything that we do as opposed to a fill this in because you're a problem. If and really, if the system that we're working in is broken, it doesn't matter how many courses you do and things like that. That's just going to make the problems worse. And so we need to actually step back and say, how can we actually be creating an environment as a whole that is supportive of well-being for everyone that's there? And then perhaps we have more intensive stuff for those that are struggling more and whatnot. But we actually, it, we need to step away from the fixing or dealing with symptoms and actually take a bigger picture of things and address really at, at the heart of it is we need to say flourishing needs to be at the heart of everything that we do. And until we get to that point, then we can actually be working against us in sort of our, our you know, we're, we're, we're making it harder for ourselves. Yes, yes. Because it's so, to me, it's so important this notion, because what I'm seeing also, and I would love you to talk to that, is <clears throat> what your thoughts are on that, is that very often when we send people, you know, this, 
this thing you so right to sort of say, well, you, the individual, are solely responsible for this problem. You're creating your own problems to sort it out, sort yourself out. Um, is also that when even if I feel that, okay, yes, maybe I'm responsible, so I'm going to take myself off and do this course. And then I come back and I re-enter an environment that is not conducive to my flourishing. So my work, um, you know, my model is is I, I I observed students at university who were flourishing and languishing, and then I just asked myself, okay, very clearly, what the, what are their differences and why, and interviewed them. So initially ten, and then another thirteen, and I created this flower model, I guess. Um, and the flower model is this idea that we are all different plants, shrubs, trees in the garden of life, and we just show up differently. And so we need different environments depending on who we are as individuals. Um, but one of the things I noticed is that if you say to a flower, okay, and, and fair enough, you know, if I nurture the flower as a gardener, as the team of gardeners, the parents, the, you know, the, 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 the educators, the plant needs to take the nutrients. But as Titnat Han says, if the if the salad's not growing, you don't blame solely the salad, right? You look at the environment. And so my take is what I was seeing is when you send people off to do courses and blame them for their well-being solely, and then you re you ask them to come back in that environment, there's almost like two responses to this. It's like real hopelessness or helplessness. And then another one that seems to be like, this environment is not for me, I'm going to uproot myself and off I go. Um, and I wonder whether there's, there's that's obviously you've seen that in your research, and whether there's a an, an in-between with like, could we do something about this? And what would be your take on that? Yeah, definitely. And I think it, and this is true in schools, this is true in businesses and whatnot, is very much loving to send people on PD, go fix yourself, you know, but we don't change the environment. And we've seen that in our research is that, uh, you know, having the whole, doing the whole training and whatnot, you see great responses coming out of it. And then people go back into the same environment and all of the training benefit completely disappears. Because the environment is not supportive. And I think your observation is spot on either, you know, it's, it's this sense of sort of oh, this is great. And then all of a sudden, oh, this is hopeless because this is never going to work in my environment or people leave. You know, we are, I mean, the rates are saying that, that, you know, a huge number of, of, of young teachers within their first five years are leaving the profession, not just leaving the school, they're leaving the entire profession. That's highly problematic. Uh, you know, and so a, a different approach that I think is necessary is uh, we really need to take, we need to say, we're not just going to send teachers out on PD or we're going to bring in a day of PD and that's going to change everything. We actually really need to start at what are the, what's the core functioning of our school? What is, what is it that we actually really value um, and really connect with that and really connect with it? Not just leadership saying these are our values because they've always been our values, but really discovering with those that are in the school, what is it that we truly value? And then that actually is going to define, this is what well-being means to us. And then we need to actually say, okay, we're going to prioritize this through the different things that we do. And that means that we're actually going to commit to that. Um, and that means we're going to change the way that we do uh, recruiting. That means we're going to have uh, training. And we're going to do training with leadership is not just going to bring in the training, they're going to stay for the training and be a part of things. Because so often you get the leaders, I mean, leaders are amazing. They're busy, they're handling so much, but, you know, they'll send teachers to things and then they'll walk out, you know, and yet our leaders need it just as much as each of our teachers. And then, you know, and so we really need to start with those, the adults in the school. And then, you know, we worry so much about the students, but if we get these pieces right, if we create an environment and then we have our teachers that are actually motivated and engaged and they're putting well-being at the heart of it, that's going to flow in to, to students because the teachers know their students best. And so, you know, there's all sorts of curriculum and things like that, but that might not actually work for the students that you have, but you know how to adapt things based on your students because you work with them. And, and so really we need to take a whole, whole school approach. 
And that doesn't mean just, okay, do some stuff with students, do some stuff with teachers. It means we actually change the way we operate at a values-based level and then let everything else flow from there. And I guess it's also from what I, I heard you say, bringing people together, because what, one of the things I've seen with the, so the move in the UK at the minute is about whole school or whole institution uh, approach, but it's very much uh, top, down. top down. Yep. Yep. I, I mean, whole school approach has, is, is like a catchword now. You know, so it's all like we're doing this across the whole school, but it's basically, you know, a couple people who have decided what we're going to do and no one buys into it. So, of course, you know, everyone just goes through the motion. But, you know, anyone who's been in education for a while is like, OK, this is just the next fad. Just <laughs> wait it out because it's just going to add workload. Just pretend for a while and not yeah. go back to doing things yeah. the way I am. Yeah. Whereas if we actually bring everyone together and things like appreciative inquiry are great for doing this is to actually bring different perspectives together and actually help people feel a part of the process of creating change and creating the community that they want to be in, then that's how you start to get buy-in and that's how you start to actually change the way that we're doing things. And none of this happens overnight. These are, these are things that we have to be committed to making change over multiple years if we really want to improve the way our schools are functioning in a way that has a lasting impact. Absolutely. And what I love about appreciative inquiry is that it, it, gives, um, it gives a space where you can, because I've seen this in, in my, in my sort of thriving or, or pushing for change in education, where initially people have a tendency to talk about what's not working and all the negatives right <laughs> but then what we what you, what appreciative inquiry does is it, it is encourages you to turn to okay yes you have that space to almost go bleh, um first and then but then now what's like what's working well and how do we build from that so could you talk to the to the, I've, I've just rewritten the second edition, a second edition of my first book. And I've actually interviewed my friend Louise, who uses uh, AI, and I've included it as a one possibility, one possible model for moving to a more systemic approach that's more inclusive yeah. in the book. Um, but I would love you to sort of explain to our listeners how that sort of work and, and why it would be uh, really useful and how and it can, can even like a, a, for example I'm thinking with me as a mother could could I mm. use that also in my own because everything is a community right or little yeah. our own culture um, so I wonder whether you would want to talk to that for a bit yeah definitely so um, appreciative inquiry it has has two words to it. appreciative so it's more of that positive affirmation side and inquiry, it's inquiring, it's exploring, it's asking questions. And AI, um, in this case, appreciative inquiry, not artificial intelligence, um, is um, um, it's, it's a process that you can go through and you can do it one-on-one -on -one in sort of a coaching uh, a conversation. You can do it in small groups. You can do it in large groups, all the way up to AI has been done with you know, upwards of 8,000 people. Um, I would not actually, we, they've done it with the United Nations. They've done it at some very high level organizations and whatnot. And so, so a key thing is in, in it is a lot of approaches to change really focus on starting with the problems. Let's, let's bring all the problems to the surface and then you know, we start fixing those. But that does two things. Number one is we get really stuck in the problems and we end up all about just sort of, again, plugging the holes, as opposed to actually saying, well, actually let's have a different lens of looking at this. AI, we actually start with, let's actually start with discovering strengths. Let's start with discovering what's actually working. And there, it, it assumes that every individual or every group or whatever, that there are good things there. Sometimes we have to look harder, but it's there. You know, so if I'm doing this with a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I might actually start with thinking about a time when, you know, when I actually, you know, things actually worked or I actually was able to do something when it seemed impossible. And so we might bring out and we're discovering that. And, and, and then we can start to move from there. Of, okay, if we start with what's good, 
what has worked, then we can take that forward because we want to take things into the future. And so why don't we might as well take the best parts of what has worked in the past into the future, as opposed to dragging all the baggage along, you know? And so we start with discovering, you know, what is good, what is right, what has worked in the past. And then we move from there to dreaming about what could be and trying to think about, well, if this, if we were really created living in the school that we really wanted this to be, what could that actually look like? It allows us to brainstorm and kind of think about sort of possibilities. And so what it does is it puts us much more into that sort of creative envisioning space, um, as opposed to sort of this complaining, everything's wrong space. Now, as part of that, there might be some real issues that come up, but we want that to come up as part of the process. We don't wanna start with the problems. We want to start with what's working and then the problems can emerge and then we can work through those. From that dream, we can then move on to designing, well, what, what, what practically could this look like and how can we start moving towards there? We're not going to do the, we might have a dream of a flourishing school and that's not going to happen overnight, but what are specific steps we can take to start moving towards that? And we get people designing it so that they actually feel like, hey, I could actually work on the curriculum. Hey, I could actually bring this into our, 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 our co-curricular activities. Hey, I, I wanna, I wanna, I'm interested in how we actually measure this. So people are able to actually plug in with, to the things that bring them interest. And then we need to actually take that forward and actually deliver upon that. Um, and that's where a lot of AI oftentimes falls down is we think so much about the planning process, but we don't think enough about, okay, how do we then carry that out? And so we also need to think about, well, how do we then take all these ideas and this energy that has been created and actually move that into action? Um, and, and so it's a beautiful way of bringing out what's actually working, because in any, any group, you know, there are good things that are there. In, in any student, even our most problematic students have strengths there. And so we can discover those and build from what is good and right and move towards what could be. And, and then it just brings people in. It, oftentimes you can get people who have never, who never talked to each other, you know, staff members talking with leadership that they never would actually interact or students talking to, um, you know, uh, some of our teachers and whatnot. And it can just bring just such depth and perspective and it helps people feel a part of the community that they're creating as opposed to something that's just sort of imposed upon them, which doesn't really resonate with them. No, and it's just, and that's what I really love about, about this approach is that to me, it feels first very positive. And I guess I, I, I am a naturally more positive person. Um, so, you know, the, the, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, the, the mental health, meaning mental ill health has always been for me, it's, it's not sat quite right. Um, but but yes, I really love that. And I, I, I really love the fact that it also fits in with the work that I'd, I'd looked at, which is Australian. So Bacon, Larkham on like embedding well-being in the curriculum and, the, you know, tapping into your intrinsic, intrinsic motivation and positive relationships and sense of belonging. And then, you know, that autonomy and competence. Um, and I, I really like that because it's so it's so empowering, right? If you get people to tap into their autonomous motivation to, like you described, um, or oh, I'll do this or I'll do that, then that's where change comes from rather than us being told you have to do this or you have yeah. to do that. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah. so much of what we do is sort of like, okay, we're told what to do, which is totally, you know, that undermines that sense of intrinsic motivation. Um, whereas if, you know, we can really be getting people to volunteer and things like that, that's that, that they're wanting to do that. And, and then the challenge is to kind of keep that motivation going and we need to set up strategies and whatnot. You know, leadership needs to be in the place of actually opening the doors and removing barriers so that the people in the community can actually move forward with, with the visions that they have. Um, and so in many ways, leadership at that point actually plays the role of blocking out sort of like things that are going to undermine the school um, and the staff and, uh, and the students and whatnot, and 
bringing in supports to actually help things happen, which is very different than most change processes when they're kind of like, you know, it's very much a management role of like, you need to be doing this. And then it's sort of the carrots and sticks. You know, we reward you if you do it and we punish you if you don't, which is a very different approach to things. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's another area that I wanted to explore with you. So one of the things when I first started my research around flourishing languaging is that I really noticed this idea that um, well-being somehow or being well meant that. So I, in my second book, I, I kept drawing to, with my students these waves, okay, up and down, and then this line at the top. And I said to my students, you, you seem to want to be at the top, like surfing the wave constantly and never experiencing the, the, the up and the, the down, obviously, oh, yes to the, the up, but not so much the down because it's not enjoyable. And I, I would love your take on that because when I first saw, you know, so for me, it's like surfing. When you surf, yeah, great. You know, you, you spend some time on the wave, but what we forget is that a lot of that is just, you know, floating, floating in the water, you know, underneath the wave, literally under the water, holding your breath, right? Um, so is well-being or does well-being mean that there's never ever, ever any struggles. Uh, so not at all. So you know, I think, and and, and I think in some of the uh, the movements around well-being, that's where we've seen problems because they've they've pushed that sort of feeling well thing. And then students, you know, they're they're adolescents, they're going through, and they have the normal ups and downs. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're in a well-being school, but they're struggling. And, you know, so now it feels like, wow, there's something wrong with me because I'm supposed to be happy. And what, what is going on with this is a misunderstanding around the role of well-being and struggle. It's almost like this, this assumption that if you're struggling, you can't be well. And yet we actually see that it's often through the struggles that we experience the greatest amount of well-being. And athlete, you know, athletes are a great example of this. You know, we, we like to look at that photo finish at the end. You know, it's like, oh, that's great. They achieved all of this. And yet, how did they get there? There was a lot of struggle, you know, a lot of bad practices, a lot of pain, a lot of hardship that athletes actually choose to go through because they know that it's only through that struggle that you're going to have that photo finish, that you're going to have that highest level of success. So I like to think about it instead of sort of thinking about, wow, to be well, I need to be like a 10 out of 10 all the time which is probably dysfunctional, you know, if, if bad things happen, you shouldn't be a 10 out of 10 on happiness, you know, that's actually dysfunctional. I like to think about it as we each sort of have this sort of zone of optimal functioning. And for some people, it's a very big zone, for others, it's a small zone. And for some, it's sort of higher on the scale, some is kind of lower on the scale. So, per, you know, our personality, some of us are just naturally happier, some of us are just naturally not. And you know, if you're really low, we want to be bringing, bringing that up. And, and, but so we kind of have this zone. And as you go through your daily life with the, you know, ups and downs, you're going to go up and down. But if you're in that zone, you're still feeling and functioning well. And sometimes we'll peak above that. Those are sort of those, those mountaintop experiences. And, you know, sometimes we're going to drop down. And so it's actually learning how to just go, you know, be able to manage the ups and downs. And so, you know, the downs don't totally throw us over and the ups. Yeah. We're, you know, we enjoy that well it's there, but we also know that we don't need to stay there and we can go on with sort of this, this more manageable level of just sort of taking life as it is. And is that where then that zone of sort of optimized uh, what did you call it? Zone of optimal. Yeah, zone of optimal functioning. Optimal. Yeah, where, you're, optimal. where you're feeling and functioning well in the domains that matter to you. Amazing. So, so yeah. zone of optimal uh, functioning is that the same as this? Uh, what they refer to in the research, where people, for example, will win the lottery, um, and then they'll go back to this normal, this normal sort, or, or, sort of. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not quite, so that's what they talk about that with that is what's called the hedonic treadmill. 
And that's, that's really talking about emotions. And so we had this really great experience and that, that would be definitely our mountaintop experience, but then we just kind of fade back down. Um, and we do see with high struggle that oftentimes people come back to that. That's just sort of our, our, our almost like our set point. And you could almost think about your optimal zone is probably on the upper side of that, that set point or, you know, um, but, you know, I would say that the optimal zone is actually more than emotion. It's, you know, it, it's what we value in life. If I value things like relationships, I value having a sense of meaning, you know, I value spirituality and whatnot, that I have sort of like a level that I'm feeling and functioning well when I'm kind of in this range. Okay. And so my optimal zone is going to be across these different domains when I'm feeling and functioning well in the domains that actually matter to me. Um, and there's still going to be the ups and downs within that, but it's trying to stay within that. And when I start to have a lot of struggle or whatever, then it's drawing on the different tools that we have and whatnot in order to get back to our zone. You know, if you're, you're surfing and you get under the waves, it's, you, you use your, your sort of tools and whatnot to get back so you're floating on the waves again mm -hmm. as it's still undulating. So I think that surfing is a beautiful example or a beautiful analogy there. And so in the, in the reports that you wrote for the, 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 the education lab, you use this, um, the, the continuum of, uh, you know, high, high thriving and low thriving and, you know, high struggle, low struggle. And I, I wondered whether you could talk to that to, to, for the listeners um, so that they could maybe understand. And is that how you, what you use to measure for people to sort of to see where they, where they are? Is, how, how do you use that, that particular? Yeah. Um, so, continuum? so, so oftentimes when people talk about sort of well-being, they, they think of a single continuum of sort of low well-being up to high well-being. And oftentimes within that, we start to think about, well, if you're struggling, you're lower on the well-being. And if you're not struggling, then you're higher on the well-being. But instead, in the reports that we've done, um, we started playing with this uh, in our initial report back in 2018. Um, and we've seen the same pattern time and time again. And so um, it's been actually really fascinating. And, um, and so what we've done is we've broken it into two continuums. So you have a continuum of well-being from, from kind of really, you know, low well-being to high well-being and then struggle and from low struggle all the way up to high struggle. And then we ask people, where would you put yourself in terms of sort of these four quadrants on things? And so you have those that are thriving without struggle. You have those that are thriving with struggle, those who don't have much struggle, but they're just getting by, and those who are really struggling. Now, that really struggling group, those are the ones that across different dimensions. And so um, we measure, we've used the, the PERMA model quite a bit. So where we measure well-being in terms of positive emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning, accomplishment, and health. Um, and across the board, the really struggling group, we see they're pretty low on those different dimensions. And so the really struggling one, they're below their zone of optimal functioning there. And we have another group that they don't have much struggle and they're thriving. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and so that's that sort of single continuum we're often thinking about. But I think the other two boxes are actually the most interesting. So you have those that don't have much struggle but they're just getting by. Those are the people that, you know, they're just living the status quo. They're not really thriving, um, but they're also more at risk of drifting into the really struggling group, you know? And so that's the one that we actually need to actually be focusing on building up their well-being much more and using their tools. The other interesting one is those that have a lot of struggle, but are actually are also thriving. And we get a lot, we, we've actually through the pandemic, we've gotten a growing number that are in that group. I see that as these are the resilient people. These are the ones that, you know, yes, life is hard, but they're, they're using their tools. They have the resources. They're, they're taking it. They're riding those waves and they're actually doing well. This is the group. We don't need to be giving them well-being strategies to, to kind of boost their well-being. They're using those. We need to be learning from them and saying, okay, you know, what are you doing? How can others learn from that? We also want to be removing some of the things that are causing some of that struggle, you know, so that they don't have to keep having that struggle. 
Um, but what it's really shown is that well-being and struggle or thriving in struggle actually can and often do go hand in hand. And so if you've ended up with hard times, that doesn't mean that you're sort of, you know, you're going to have well-being. We can actually take control of things and, and it takes effort. It doesn't just happen. If, it, if, if we don't give any effort, then we're going to drift into one of those more, you know, not thriving groups. But if we actually draw on the tools that are out there, if we actually take efforts to support our mental health and well-being, then we actually can do well despite the struggle that's there. And that's really uh, amazing and fascinating because if I think about the amount of young people who arrive at university and have never struggled, yeah. so parents have completely cleared the path, um, then how does that fit in with 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 what you are seeing so how how more likely are they to then have have a a, a lower sort of uh, thriving is what's your experience of that yeah so the experience is 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 well the path is cleared and everything's going well they can have that they're in that that low struggle high thriving group but then what happens when the struggle comes because the struggle will come you know, life, life is hard and, you know, everyone is going to have, the, the last few years have shown us that life is hard, you know. Um, I actually worry a little bit about those in the, we, we do have some that have stayed in the thriving, no struggle group um, through the pandemic. And I'm lucky kind of like, them. I know, and I'm kind of like, are you, are, you're either really lucky or out of, out of touch with reality. You still you know? have a post. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, but what we do see is that those who have, you know, have always had their path clear, they're much more likely to end up into one of the really struggling groups because all of a sudden, you know, if you don't have any practice with dealing with struggle, then, you know, we don't have the skills, we don't have mindsets and behaviors and whatnot to actually be able to, to deal with struggle. Now, that doesn't mean that I want to make a really hard life for my child. You know, no. <laughs> I, I want them to have a good life, but they also need to have those, you know, they actually, we need to build some resilience in them. We need to help them understand when challenge happens, this is how we can deal with it. And, and for too many young people, they've had everything cleared. And then when struggle happens, they fall apart because they have no skills and no ability to actually deal with the struggle. So it, it kind of blows their mindset so much that they end up really struggling and then they're prone to mental, all sorts of mental illnesses. Um, and so I, I know the with parents, it's so well-meaning. We don't wanna see our, our, our children struggle. And yet, you know, by protecting them from everything, then they really don't have the skills and ability when struggle inevitably does come. And you've illustrated so well what I often say to parents when, when they talk to me in the sense that I say, well, take the same principle, because in French, mental health and physical health are, is, is something we have and that you can look after. So I often say to them, imagine your child, you know, as they as they grow up, we, you have childhood illnesses because you obviously you want to develop your immunity, right? Your, your, your immune sort of strength. Um, and so I so said, imagine you put your child in this place and it's all completely uh, germ free. And then age 18, you open the door and go, off you go, darling. Well, they're not going to last very long in the world, right? Um, and so you illustrated that so beautifully because it's, it's exactly the same with our emotional health, right? And our well-being. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we, we think of it so easily with the physical health. And yet we don't think about it enough in terms of the mental health, you know, mm -hmm. and yet it, it, it is, you know, the, the same thing is that childhood is a great time to experiment and try and, and yeah, we fail, you know, but that's the, there are lessons learned with that. And so, you know, we as adults need to actually embrace that and, and allow our, our young people to have some of those experiences while they're still in this, you know, they still have support and it's sort of, you know, safer in a lot of ways. We also need to model how to deal with things. I mean, I, 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 part of the challenge is a lot of our parents don't have well-being skills, you know, and so what they're modeling is 
you know, they, they don't have the skills to actually be doing this, which is why the schools become so incredibly important for teaching young people how to, you know, how to have these skills to deal, not just to feel well, but also how to manage struggle and challenge well. Fantastic. I've, I've enjoyed speaking to you so much and I could speak to you for hours, but I'm also conscious of, of your time and your day ahead. So I've just got two more questions, if I may. The first one is, it's been absolutely fabulous and I've loved it. And it's like, okay, so as a parent or a teacher, if I've listened to this conversation, um, what can I do to best support my child or the pupils in my school and you know to start thinking into in terms of the 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 well-being and and you know the community well-being what would be the steps you would advise us to take well i I think for i I would say different steps depending on sort of what your position is and whatnot i think for for parents or teachers who are just interested in this there there's all sorts of stuff on sort of well-being positive education there's curriculum there's different podcasts there's you know lectures and things like that just start learning about all of this there's some great books out there as well that are you know very tangible um uh Seligman's Flourish book a lot of people really connect with that one a lot just as sort of like diving into all of this just start learning more and and just you know start trying these different things I think if you're more in you know schools and wanting to be thinking about more of a strategic approach to things um well a, a book I would suggest and this, uh uh is I I recently um published a handbook of positive education um, and um, I think we can give the, the link to that. So it's freely available um, and it includes uh, writings from experts from around the world across a whole array of topics. And it really thinks about taking this much more systematic structured approach to really creating change. There's some amazing chapters in there that really bring all of this to life. There's a lot of good ideas and how to do that. So that would definitely be sort of a go-to sort of resource um, that thankfully is freely available for everybody so yeah so we'll put the, those links that's really really good uh, fantastic and then my final question is at the end of the podcast I always ask my guests if there was one thing that you would want people to take away amongst all of the things we've said what would it be for you that's a very good question um I I, I think the one thing I would take away is that, you know, well-being is possible, but it doesn't just happen, is that we actually have to work at it and that it's a valuable thing to work at and that we really, in our schools, we really should be putting well-being at the heart of all that we do. It's going to take effort. It takes ongoing effort, but it's worth it for every individual within our school community. Thank you so much, Peggy. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much. And I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.